Welcome to Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat, a podcast for all you wine lovers who, if you're like me, just cannot get enough of the good stuff. I'm Yanina Doyle, your host, brand ambassador, wine educator, and sommelier. So stick with me as we dive deeper into this ever-evolving, wonderful world of wine. And wherever you are listening to this, cheers to you. Hi, so for those of you tuning back in, you may have noticed since the last episode, uh, there's been about a six-month break, and I am missing somebody. This is going to be permanent. So, John, I think John realised that his face was was just too pretty to be, you know, kept in a podcast. So he's um, going for bigger and better things. So, unfortunately, everyone, you are stuck with me. As it's just me, I have renamed Unfiltered, a wine podcast to eat, sleep, wine, repeat as that's where you can find me on Instagram and on YouTube and my blog, eatsleepwinerepeat.co.uk. So no more John, but double me. So enjoy and welcome to this new kind of style of podcast. This episode, I'm super excited, is an episode on the wines of Argentina. I have an interview later on with Phil Crozier, who is the brand ambassador for Wines of Argentina in the UK and Europe and definitely knows his stuff. So he's going to be taking us on a journey of the soils and the altitudes and why specifically Mendoza is not one profile as many people might think. As many of you may know, Argentina is famous for one specific great variety and that is Malbec. So my question to you guys is, do you think Malbec is native to Argentina? For those of you that are not sure, it is not. It came from another country at some point in history by some agronomist. I'm going to tell you all about it at the end of this show. So stay tuned. I'm going to keep you waiting just a little bit longer for that information. As this episode is on Wines of Argentina, I want to give you my winery of the week, a winery that you need to know about. So have you heard of Bodega Otronia? Bodega Otronia is officially the most southern vineyard in the world commercially making wine. So they are making wine on the 46th parallel. Now before that, Central Otago in New Zealand on the 45th parallel was the furthest south. To put this into context, first of all, when we talk about latitude, when you start getting to about 43 degrees latitude, it starts getting really hard to grow grapes. Well, Quite clearly, some people like a challenge. Um, we have Alejandro Bulgaroni, um, who is a oil magnate. He basically has, he's a billionaire, has made a lot of money. For those of you that have not heard of Bodega Garzon in Uruguay, go check that out. That is a humongous property. It's known as one of the best vineyards in the whole world based on the fact that they have uh, a golf course luxury hotel complex. It's like an 85 million dollar project it's insane now this same owner he has created vineyards and wineries kind of around the world now and this specific one being the furthest south it is in an incredible place down in Patagonia now at the furthest point south is the region Chubut and this is where Bodega Atronia is situated so they are focusing on Pinot Noir and Chardonnay 
There's also a white blend that they're doing, which is Gewürztraminer, Chardonnay and Pinot Gris. So they started planting in 2011 and carried on planting to about 2015. What's so crazy about this project is the winds are horrendous. We're talking about 110 kilometers. I have Googled that. That is 68.35 miles for those of you who prefer miles. (laughs) Um, They have about less than 200 millimeters of rain. uh, So very, very little. Where this property is, we're talking four degrees cooler than Uko Valley. And Uko Valley, as you're going to hear later on in the podcast, is one of the finest examples of the regions within Mendoza to get incredible high altitude Malbec. This area is about 100 miles from the closest airport. It really is in the middle of nowhere. So if you ever get to see Bodega Atronia on a label, they have the Atronia 45 Rugientes, which means roaring for roaring wind. They're the cheaper ones, and there's a Pinot Noir and a white blend. And then they have the numbered Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, which is from specific blocks. So check out this extreme winery. I wanted to introduce the wines of Argentina slightly before Phil talks in a little bit more detail. For those that don't know, it was the Spanish missionaries that came over to Argentina in the 16th century, bringing over grapes with them. Argentina is a very continental climate. The defining geographical feature of Argentina is the Andes Mountains. The tallest part of the mountains in all of the Americas is actually in Mendoza. They reach 22,841 feet. That's basically nearly 7,000 meters, so quite high. This is effectively a desert, which is why everyone tends to live at higher altitudes. With higher altitude, you get more sunlight intensity, you get grapes with far more concentration, the polyphenols and the tannins are much more intense, there's more aromatics, there's more colour. Mendoza itself accounts for about 70% of all the grapes that are grown in Argentina. Mendoza you're going to find in the middle of the country. It's separated into three regions, Maipú, Lujón de Cuyo, and Uco Valley. Now, Maipú has the lowest altitude of them all, and actually Bonada the grape variety grows very well here. I wanted to mention Bernardo because it doesn't get enough attention. Bernardo is this beautiful kind of light, fruity, gorgeous grape variety with lovely natural acidity. It really is a very easy drinking wine with kind of a bit of an earthy Italian edge to it. So check out Bernardo. I think there's a lot of potential for Bernardo, but Malbec's obviously taken centre stage. So with time, Bernardo may do better. Lujon de Cujo was always the more historic area and produces incredible Malbecs, but Uco Valley has now become the place for attention. But it isn't just about the Malbec. You now know about Bernarda. We will talk a little bit about Torontes, which is a gorgeous white grape variety that grows mainly up in the north. But there is some future for other grape varieties. Cabernet Sauvignon, obviously, and Chardonnay grow there. There's Sauvignon Blanc. But my money is on Cabernet Franc and Semillon. We need to keep watching what happens with the wines of Argentina. I've already mentioned about the project down in the far south, the most southern commercial winery in the world. They've also got one of the highest vineyards in the world. So this is actually in Salta, right in the north, uh, Bodega Colome. They have vineyards that are planted well over 3,000 metres. If that's not enough, Trapiche, who are known for their Malbecs in Mendoza, several years ago started a project on the Atlantic coast, right by Buenos Aires. It's called Costa y Pampa, and that's something completely different compared to any other winery. So, so we really need to keep our eyes on what comes out of Argentina. 
So enough of me. I think it's time that we go over to the interview I had with Phil. Hi, Phil. Thank you very much for joining me. Thanks very much for asking me. I am super, super excited because everybody I know who loves wine, loves Malbec and therefore loves Argentina. So um, for anyone who doesn't know who Phil Crozier is, he is the European brand ambassador of wines of Argentina and uh, kind of, I like to think, the king of Malbec in the UK. I think that's fair to say. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree, Phil? Oh, I, don't, I, wouldn't like to, <laughs> I don't want to blow my own trumpet, but I, yes, I did something to try and promote that in the early years, just when Malbec was relatively unknown. And it still astonishes me how quickly it's become part of the vernacular of wine in the UK. It's, it's astonishing. Uh, I, I can't believe it. Uh, I wish I'd been paid a bit more for it, but uh, <laughs> um, we all. No, you yeah. just. I, I have to say, from you, you should have been paid more because <laughs> I'll, I'll speak to your people. Because <laughs> we spoke last year, and I remember you telling me that it was back in just like 1999 or 2000 that you mm. were kind of in charge of the. You see, so you were full, the former director of the Goucher Restaurant, so which for. Oh, wine director. Yes, 99. There were 13 wineries available in the UK. Um, I know because I phoned up every single importer um, and uh, well Malbec wasn't really in the language of of Argentina then it was uh, a a big range of wines that I put on the list Mm -hmm. and it started to slowly dawn on me of course I had to go there I went there a few times uh, every year and it just uh, occurred to me that this was something that was very sellable The, the customers that we served increasingly liked it uh, my job, I thought, was to, to make it a very premium wine because, you know, many countries came into the UK market at a lower end or a mid end. And mm-hmm. Argentina has been very fortunate in that it's come in at a very high end. And so it is, I still think it, it commands a, a pretty good price, even in the supermarkets. Um, you know, buying cheap Malbec is, it's not really easy to make cheap Malbec. It's not really possible to make cheap Malbec. Mm-hmm. As, a, as a great variety, it doesn't lend itself to huge volumes. And the terroir of Argentina doesn't lend itself to huge volumes. So it has to be something that I think that belongs into the middle to the high end of, of the market. And I sought to do that by, uh, I remember in 2009, I produced a wine list, which I called Super Malbecs. Um, it was yeah it was kind of I didn't want to take the whole thing too seriously but of course there's a serious side to it and uh, taking the very best Malbecs from Argentina and Mm -hmm. arranging them in a in a list which went uh, was very uh, to do with regionality in fact you know back in 2000 I did a wine list that looked at altitude because it was very apparent to me every time I went that the altitude of the vineyards had a very big effect on the style of the wine. Mm-hmm. So when people were beginning to learn about Argentina, of course, I think altitude was a very logical way to look at it because it's a completely continental climate. And so, and also to teach people about Argentina is a very interesting way of, of doing it. So I, I did a list that went from north to south 
high to low because of course in the north of Argentina we have the highest vineyards and in the south of Argentina we have the lowest vineyards and of which course which we will talk about which is yes. which I think is so exciting and I remember you telling me the, the the difference between certain parts of Mendoza and how important it is to actually look at altitude and even to understand the GIs the geological indications you know the sorry geological geographical indications well there could be you could be argued that they are geological as well um, yeah, although it doesn't stand for geological no, you could it argue that yeah but, well if you go to Mendoza which is of course the largest area of wine production in Argentina is the largest in the whole of Americas we have around 148,000 hectares of, uh, of, of vineyards mm. of which we have around 48,000 hectares of Malbec and of course if you're going to learn a country um, through its terroir it occurred to me that uh, obviously I had to teach a lot of people about this. Um, I had 1,500 staff at any one time that I needed to teach. So, yeah, so um, we had a very comprehensive training program with examinations and things like that, which really focused on how we sold the wines through the style that would relate to the altitude. Mm. Now, that, there's a general rule of thumb <clears throat> when you're in a mountain range uh, like the Andes and in Mendoza, we have the world's highest mountain range outside of the Himalayas. So we have very big mountains there. It's a really big and wide part of the Andes. As you know, the Andes is the longest mountain, mountain range, range. In, mm -hmm. in the world. We're in the foothills. And so if you start to the east of Mendoza, you're going and you're going west, of course, you're going up the Andes because um, if you're looking north, you're looking north towards Salta. And if you're looking south, you're looking south towards Patagonia. Mm -hmm. So if you get that in your head, for every 150 meters you go up in altitude, you lose on average about one degree Celsius mm -hmm. in temperature. Now, that may not seem too remarkable, but if you take uh, someone like Barancas in Maipú, in the east of Mendoza, where we're at about 780 to 800 meters above sea level. And then we go up to the Uca Valley, Waltajari, which is about 60 kilometers away from there. We have the same difference as we have from Tuscany to Burgundy. So, I, that, you know. For me, when you told me that. Yeah. It just shows you the, how exciting it can be on a journey of, you know, Malbec from Mendoza is not just Malbec from Mendoza. No, you know, no, absolutely not. so much more to learn, to explore. And yeah. I did a tasting with you and you were, you know, showcasing, like I mentioned, the geological differences as well. Yeah. Do you care to just talk a little bit about that, actually? Well, I mean, although the focus at the beginning when Argentina first came to the UK market, which is, uh, I was very fortunate to be at that point, has been on sort of trying to educate people to the continental climate. It is a totally continental climate. There's no influence from the Chilean side of the Andes at all and there's no influence for the Atlantic because we're far too far away from the Atlantic. In the past few years their focus has been much more of a geological focus because it's one thing to talk about going up every 150 meters from east to west in Mendoza but as you do of course you are um, encountering a lot of different soil types and as you know, soil has a, a, an immense bearing on the, um, the way the vine behaves. Mm -hmm. So generally, the soils in Mendoza or any part of the Andes are very poor. You know, we have at the most between 2 and 3% of organic matter. The, the other thing to, to, to understand about the geology of the, the Andes is that it's a, 
it's it's a very young mountain range. It's 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 you know it's it's a it's no more than 150 million years old. It's super not, young. Uh, yeah, <laughs> no, it, it actually, is super it young. Is, it is actually in terms of uh, yeah. the history of this world. Yeah. yeah, because you have the two plates that came together, the American plates uh, that came together, and then, of course, you have the, the, the formation of the Andes, which is mm -hmm. still actually growing. So as a result, over the years, we have different weathering. We have different influences on, on the way that the soil um, has, has, has formed. So... One thing in particular that people are paying attention to is the role of chalk, um, or mm. caliche, as they call it in Argentina. Cal caliche? Caliche. Um, is that kind of, are they saying calcareous, but in a different yeah, way? Caliche, it is, okay. Yeah, it is. But it is a particular f a form of, of calcium carbonate, which can come in many forms. It can either be ingrained into sand, for example, mm -hmm. as it is in Waltashari, or if you go down south in the Uca Valley uh, to Paraki Altamira, which is the first IG to be given an IG status based purely on the uh, soil profile that you yeah. have here, we have huge great big rocks of granite intermingled with a little sand and just a little bit of uh, clay. Mm -hmm. And they are covered in uh, active limestone. So uh, where did that come from? Well, it came from the melting glaciers, of course, and the rivers, which of course something that we also don't really imagine but of course we need the rivers in the Andes to be transporting the material and to uh, move the material in, in, in alluvial and then further down a fluvial way in the way in which the rocks form. Of course we also have another influence here is that we have winds from the south that at times have brought ash from the volcanoes no, uh, that, really? that, yes okay. yes we do we do so there's quite a you have some um, colluvial alluvial and fluvial influences in, in the rocks and the other thing is is that is that is always changing it's not static it's not um, mm. it's not a, a vineyard area that is a thousand years old like Bordeaux it is something that is always changing so there is some change depending on what's happening with uh, geologically. So for example there are little mountains that have been formed in the last 20,000 years and then we have the older mountain range which was much much older. So we have uh, a lot of difference, differences in, in geology. One thing that um, is striking though is that in those areas where we have chalk we do get a very different style of wine. In the Uca Valley in particular, places like Paraki Altamira, Los Chacajes, uh, which is in the, uh, the middle of the Uca Valley, and then to the north we have Hueltajari. Um, and these are much closer to the mountains. So we have a large deposits of, of chalk, and they do seem to have quite a bearing on the way in which the vine behaves. Much lower yields, uh, presumably cooler soils. So we do tend to get a lot more acidity in those areas. I mean, if you take the great areas of the world like Burgundy, which of course is, um, is chalk too, you know, mm -hmm. there's a huge influence from chalk, champagne, etc., etc., which is the extreme, of course. But the profile of the soil also, in a particular, just a given a few hectares, can change enormously. So we have uh, massive variances in those soil types, even with a single vineyard. And there has been um, a little bit of a, a trend in the last few years uh, mm -hmm. in the way they actually deal with that and how they, how they measure it. I mean, we can now measure what's called the conductivity of the soil, whereby how much, how that water, when it's put into the ground, and of course, that has to be put on, put in by irrigation, mm -hmm. be it uh, flood irrigation. That's in the more traditional areas like Luján de Cujo and Maipú, further down the valley, 
or in the Uka Valley where most of that is uh, drip irrigation because we have less water and we have to make sure that we look after that water properly in terms of sustainability. So the way in which we irrigate and how we use the water now is determined by the soil. So that's why so much work has gone on in looking at soil profiles in the last few years. It's, it's not just the maintenance of water, it's uh, in certain parts of your vineyard how you deliver that water to match the requirements of the soil because some soils are very let through the water very easily and some of them soak up the water a little bit more. So that's um, what we call precision viticulture. So you will do a map of the vineyard. Um, you can take uh, readings of the soil and then you can see which areas have higher conductivity and lower conductivity. And then you can pick your grapes at harvest in terms of time uh, that suits the ripeness of the grape and then make microvinifications and those microvinifications will either be released separately as microvinifications in terms mm -hmm. of the wine or they can be blended together. So it, it's amazing just in the last 10 years Argentina has now uh, really done most of its research has been done in, in how, how the soils affect the vines. Well, I just think if anyone who's listening and is a Malbec fan, and at the end of the day, a fan of wines of Argentina, just shows that the quality of the product is only going to get better and better with this, this better understanding of the terroir. Absolutely. Um, and now, so now we've touched on Malbec from Mendoza because this is the area that everybody knows about. But what I want to touch on is a little bit of the south and a little bit of the north. Can you tell me your thoughts about Patagonia down in the south, where mm -hmm. it's a hell of a lot colder? This yeah. seems to be potentially the ideal place for Pinot Noir. And you guys seem to be doing a really good job of Pinot Noir down in Patagonia. Yeah, well, there is a, a, a not only just is it a great place for Pinot Noir, of course, there's a tradition of Pinot Noir down mm -hmm. here because... Older vines, uh, there's a lot of older vines. Older vines, you have. Uh, you have one particular small winery that has a vineyard of Pinot Noir that was planted in 1932 uh, in the Rio Negro. There are different parts to Patagonia. If you go further south from Mendoza and you leave Mendoza, you hit the north of Patagonia. Mm -hmm. um, and then if you go a little bit further south, you're in a, a very new region, which is called Nauken, mm -hmm. um, which is uh, where a, a number of wineries in the last uh, 20 years planted vineyards, so it's very new. And is that a little bit warmer? They see a bit more sun They see the Rio a, Negro? No? Not really, no, because they're on the same latitude. Okay. We have to remember that Patagonia, the altitude is not the cooling influence, mm -hmm. like it is when you go further north. Here we have the latitude as being mm -hmm. the calling influence and the proximity to the mountains is less than it is in, in Mendoza. Uh, the proximity of the mountains also has a big bearing on the temperatures. Down here we have the river. We've got two rivers. One is called the Nauken River, the other one is called the Limai River that meet in a place called Nauken, which is where okay. a number of individuals in the last 20 years planted a lot of vines. It's, quite a, it's a very new region. And then if you keep go where they meet at Nauken, if you move east and we go around it's as much as 800 kilometers to the Atlantic Ocean, um, we have the Rio Negro. Now the Rio Negro is a huge river and of course where you have a river you have water and where you have water mm. you have agriculture. Okay. Um, and agriculture started down here when the British built the railways and uh, it's a very famous area for growing apples and pears and cherries which were then exported to the UK when everything was out of season here. So we always had a... a, a so it was a very big industry. 
-hmm. <coughs> Around that time, we had a number of people. Of course, Argentina is a country of immigration. We had people coming from all over the world, not just to produce fruit, but also they started planting vines. People get uh, thirsty. Yes. Well, it's <laughs> it's in their culture. It's their and national drink. So, yes, you know, it's... Yes. So up until the 1960s, we had a lot of wineries down here. And famously, uh, the first place that Moët Chandon went to outside of France was Argentina mm -hmm. in um, 1953. They bought with them Pinot Noir, Semillon, and they also bought with them Chardonnay and Pinot Meunier. So they planted down there to make sparkling wine. Now, are, um, they, are they in Rio Negro? Or? They were in the Rio Negro. Um, okay. They left. They couldn't really make it work. The infrastructure wasn't quite right for them, so they started planting in the Uco Valley in Mendoza. Okay. Um, With the very, attitude still quite Yeah, high. very forward-thinking people. Um, very forward-thinking. Chandon Argentina is a huge, huge operation, which meant that a number of people then came in and started and reviving right. yeah, these vineyards because there's a lot of old abandoned vineyards down here. Now, those abandoned vineyards don't actually disappear. They, they stay alive because mm -hmm. we're very near a river. So the water table is much higher than it would be in Mendoza, for example. If you want to get water high up in the Yucca Valley, and if you're not close to a river, you've got to drill down. Sometimes a long way, you know, 100 metres, 150 metres, you've got to drill down to get the water. Here you don't have to, we're, we're, we're near the water. So really, it's the river that dominates everything. So vine growing is actually easier? In... Uh, uh, no, it's never easier. <laughs> No. Uh, for one thing, uh, what they suffer from more than Mendoza, and there's, there's not a place in the world that doesn't suffer from frost, mm. but they suffer from frost. So okay. um, some of the early settlers, for example, they were planting grape varieties that were early to flower and early to ripen. For example, Trousseau uh, or Bastardo. Uh, Savagnin from um, Jura. There's in, some down there. Yeah, so it's are quite they interesting. Still there? Are they yes, still there? Yes, they're still there. Yes, they're still going. You know, are these being bottled and being exported? Yeah, or? Okay. they are. They are, okay. yeah. And very old vineyards too. There's Trousseau that are over 100 years old. Okay. For me, the, the, I think the, the reason I ended up finding out about Pinot Noir was simply the winery Bodega Chakra, which for people mm. who don't know is, is owned by Piero in, in, um, in César de la Rochetta. There you go, and you'd be able to pronounce it perfectly. Who, for anyone who doesn't understand, is the family of Sasakaya. So yeah. a pretty knowledgeable wine family um, yes. of the world has gone down there and they're making some really, really good cooler climate, fresh wines. And obviously the Pinot Noir was the first one I tried. So that's when yeah. Rio Negro, for me, I got quite interested in that area. Yeah, there are other people producing Pinot Noir, of course, as well. But I think we're going to see a lot more of these old vineyards, the abandoned vineyards. And the 1932 from Chakra is from an old vineyard that was abandoned that they brought back to life. Ah, so um, they have the oldest vineyard. You said some of the oldest well, vineyard was 1932. No one really knows if it's the oldest because, mm. you know, there were so many vineyards in Latin America. We don't really know how old they are because there was no form of registration of the vineyards you know yeah. nowadays you have to register your vineyards with the IMV in Argentina so um, Argentina has a full picture of who has what and how old it is but there are some vineyards that could be older than they say because okay. they have no way of knowing who planted that vineyard when so of course we didn't have problems with phylloxera so the vines are all on their own roots older than 
I would imagine older than, old. old, older than the original vineyards that they came from. So, so how mm. would you compare the climate though to Mendoza? Should we say Uco Valley, the the most big, highest vineyards in Mendoza, are Uco Valley? So let's compare that to well that here in Rio Negro. Well, you have so if you go to the Rio Negro, you've got similar temperatures to the Uco Valley. Okay. Um, okay. So um, you know they're not that different. Where you do have the difference is also in wind. We have a lot of wind and mm -hmm. wind as a cooling effect, of course, and we have very strong winds down here. Uh, some people refer to it as the Tierra dos Vientos, which is the land of the wind. And, you, mm -hmm. and, you know, that we have all of those images of Patagonia with those uh, trees that have been formed and bent by the direction <laughs> of the wind. So it's very windy. And one of the ways in which they can protect from the wind is to grow uh, alamos or, or poplar trees around the vineyards so that you have them. some to protect them. That's, uh, that's number one. Number two, of course, we have much longer days because we're going further south as you would do further north. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. although the sunlight intensity is less, and sunlight intensity is very important to the way in which the vine behaves and the way in which the grapes behave, we have less sunlight intensity, but we have longer days. So, you know, they are longer by, uh, you know, maybe an hour, an hour and a half, two hours. So That makes a big difference, doesn't it? Yes, that makes a big difference. So we, it, is, it is quite different to Mendoza. Mendoza, if the higher you go into the mountains, the more intense is the ultraviolet light. And, of course, then the, the, the grapes behave differently because they produce more tannin and anthocyanin, which is the colour molecule within mm -hmm. the grape. Um, so they have thicker skins. They have very small berries, and they also have very small berries in, in Patagonia, smaller than they do in Mendoza, more tightly packed as well. So the Pinot Noir, for example, if you took a bunch of Pinot Noir from Burgundy and a bunch of Pinot Noir from um, Patagonia, a bunch of Pinot Noir from Patagonia is half the size. The oh. berries are much smaller, they're much tighter. I mean, imagine it's only natural, really. Um, if, you're, if you're in the wind and you're walking through the wind, mm. uh, you, you bunch yourself up, don't you? And the vine oh, does the same. Like humans. The, yeah. Well, <laughs> vines are very human, actually. They're very human in the way they behave. All life is like that, really. It, it behaves we according to get, what it has. We get better with adversity, you know. What doesn't kill us makes us stronger. And we well, that's know. particularly true of vines, of course. Mm -hmm. the, uh, vines need to suffer a bit in order to work hard. When they work hard, they're, they're, the vine is, is produce, putting all its effort into producing fruit. It is, mm -hmm. it's, it's, a way, it's the way that uh, the vine procreates. So that's, that's what it does. Yeah. So do you think then, you're saying you get obviously the, the intensity of the actual sun, being closer to the sun up in Mendoza and they get thicker skins, they're going to be darker, a little bit more concentrated styles, whereas down, say, in the south, you might get a little bit more, a bit lighter, maybe, would you say fresh? Yeah, yeah, well, elegance? I don't... Uh, well, the Uka Valley, for example, don't forget the Uka Valley is cool. So you yeah. get a lot of um, uh, freshness, high acidity. You also get that in Patagonia. You probably don't get the same thickness of skins. Um, and uh, also there is, of course, there's the human element there that says um, we make our wines according to our place. Yeah. So the wines do tend to be a little bit more delicate and elegant okay. from down here. We get less different aromas. Oak, yeah, well. well, less use of oak is something that's going on in all, all of Argentina. Mm, um, okay. uh, for one thing, if you're a vigneron and you're buying barrels from a cognac or from the great barrel makers, uh, you're spending a lot of money, particularly if you're spending a lot of money in pesos. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the peso has been devalued a lot. Mm -hmm. And so it's 
more and more expensive for them to do that. We have the phenolic ripeness in the grapes. We, we have the ripeness in the grapes. It's guaranteed pretty much. So um, we don't need to rely on oak so much. It's in the, in the winemaking itself. And this is something that Argentina has been doing in the last 20 years is steering away. There's nothing wrong with oak. Don't get me wrong. Well, oak is, is what it is. But if it's used correctly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so freshness and purity really are much more of what's going on in, in Argentina. It took a few individuals to actually push that as far as they could and then come back a little bit so that people understood that actually you don't need to leave the grapes until April or May. You can now leave them until well, yeah. this year, the vintage in Argentina, they were picking in January. So, you know. My goodness. Well, that yeah. good old climate change. Now, yeah. interesting, you talked on, you just said like the less use of oak. So that's going to take me to the white grape variety that I want to talk about. If anyone has drunk the white grape variety of Argentina, they will know it is um, Torrontes. Would you agree with me that the best do grow up in Salta in the north? Or do you think there's a few changes now, other areas that are starting to do really well with Well, uh, we know Torrontes from the north, of course. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it, it's interesting, the history of Torrontes is, it's one, it's a, belongs to a group of grapes called the Criollas, or the Criollas, mm. as they say in Argentina. This is a group of grapes that changed and adapted to the climate from two grape varieties that were brought to our, the Americas. One, the first one was from, what well, we think was from the Canary Islands, um, and which is uh, known in Argentina as a Criolla Chica. Which is listed um, Prieto, no? Yes, mm -hmm. um, okay, yeah. and also it's known in Chile as Pais, and in yes. Peru as Mission, and the United States. And the other one was Moscatel de Alejandria. And those two, somewhere along the way, we probably think in Mendoza, crossed. And there are three clones of Torrontes. There is Riojano, which is mm -hmm. considered to be the best clone and the one that really you need to be drinking if you're drinking, um, you know, uh, uh, good Torrontes. Uh, mm -hmm. There's uh, San Juanino from San Juan and Mendocino from Mendoza. So there's three different clones. Now, the clone that is grown in the north of Argentina uh, namely in the provinces uh, of uh, Catamarca, Salta, uh, La Rioja as well, which is part of the Cujo region of uh, uh, Argentina, which is further south, and places like Jujuy as well to the north, is Riojano. That's the clone that they use. Yeah, can I stop you for one second? Because that's exactly what I believe, that the Riojano is the best clone. But yeah. when you, and, and I know it is used the majority of the time, to be fair, it's the most yeah. planting. But when you pick up a bottle of Torontes, it doesn't say, I personally have not picked up a bottle of Torontes and seen the specific clone. They're not no. putting that on the label. So, you know, well, consumer, <laughs> well, we have to get people to drink Torontes first. Okay. You're just, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, let's, let's, let's get people to drink Torontes first and then we I'm can trying. start maybe Phil, doing, doing that. <laughs> um, but Torontes is uh, it's, it's an indigenous grape to Argentina. It's, um, it's something we should celebrate and it's a wonderful grape. It's, it's, it's muscati. We have a, um, uh, there's been a big change in the way it's made as well in the last few years. Susanna Balbo was very instrumental in that. When mm, she okay. uh, worked for a big winery called El Esteco up there, she found ways to extract the juice without extracting the polyphenols from the grapes. The grapes are very big. The bunches are very big. Uh, they're very phenolic, so sometimes you would get quite rustic, uh, low in acidity wines. They're picking much earlier. We have much fresher wines, less of that kind of soapy aroma, aromas that uh, often people would dislike in the wine. So it's a much fresher uh, style now that you're but getting. So don't be so afraid aromatic, to use it. Uh, very aromatic, yeah. You have, you have that elderflower, lychee. Mm. Um, 
sort of peachy. Uh, the texture as well is is delicious. And the great thing about Torontos, of course, is it's never expensive. You know, no one makes expensive Torontos. It's quite a high yielding plant. It's not like uh, we we're trying to, to buy make one bottle. We can buy no, two it's, or three it's a, for a it, exactly. It's a <laughs> it's a it's a grape of the people. It's a it's a uh, it lets you know it's it's not a wine snob's grape, but and yet it's utterly delicious. I mean, if you like Asian food, if you like Latin American food, you go to Peru, for example, and you like uh, all of the ceviches, etc., etc., mm. that you get from there. One of the world's great cuisines, in my view. Torontes is the grape that must go with it, and anything with a bit of spice, it stands up to spice beautifully. If you're going to drink a wine with curry. If you're in a Thai restaurant and you're having a green or a red curry, it's the, it, you must drink Torontos with it. In fact, I find myself quite often, uh, back in the days when you could go to restaurants, I found myself <laughs> in um, Indian restaurants and Thai restaurants, and if they didn't have a Torontos on the wine menu, I'd ask to see the manager when I was paying the bill. Um, I'll be saying, you're well, like, listen... Your foot goes down. Who, I am not yeah. having this. <laughs> no, who's your supplier? Okay, well, they have this Torontos. You need to have Torontos with your food because it is the best grape to go with this style of food. It really is. Well, I hope you're changing the, the world one Indian restaurant at a time, Phil. Oh, well, as soon as you see the sun, it is also a grape that you must oh, sit down and that, drink. I agree. Um, mm. Now, I just want, just want to finish off. I know that since, obviously, you know, quarantine's happened, you've had to take all of your kind of teachings and learnings online rather uh-huh. than being able to share it with the world actually physically yeah. so so anybody who wants to learn more about Torontes around about re- the regionality about everything in in Argentina they can go on on Instagram and there's a whole load of IGTV videos that you've created yeah. right uh, also they can go to our website winesofargentina.com lots of different presentations uh, that you can download about Torontes uh, in particular the different clones how many hectares there are etc where they are so yes there's, there's lots of information on there that you can download and use to either drink with your friends and talk about it or or just to just to get a little bit more of a background on this wonderful grape variety that's fantastic honestly okay well guys um i hope you all uh, learn a little extra something it's not just about malbec although malbec is delicious phil you i could literally listen to you for hours and hours i'll just have to come up with an excuse to have you back because mm. i just want to know more and more and i imagine everyone else does too so thank you so much for sharing just my pleasure the, just the tip of the iceberg of your knowledge absolutely I'm, I'm humbled that you spent some time in talking about all these amazing things in Argentina. Hopefully everyone can explore a little bit further. Go and buy Argentine wine. <laughs> do it, do it, do it. Thank <laughs> you so much, Phil. And all right. um, we, we shall talk again soon about more okay. in Argentina. Thank all you, right. Phil. Take Thanks. care. Thanks. Bye. Bye. So I hope you've enjoyed listening to Phil talk about the wines of Argentina. Following on from his comments on food pairing with Torontas, I fully agree. Something like a coconut curry, chicken korma maybe, is divine. And even maybe some foie gras because the acidity really cuts through it, especially if you're putting some fruity chutney on top. So, of course, Malbec, what do you pair with it? Everybody talks about meat steak. Now, what grows together goes together. And what they do do amazing is asados. So every Sunday, it's part of their culture to do big grills. And that will always go perfectly with Malbec. 
but it's not just steaks. Think about Patagonian lamb. I mean, that's supposed to be some of the best in the world and they pair together perfectly. Uh, burger with blue cheese is one of my favorites with Malbec. Remember, Malbec has very soft tannings, so you don't need something that's a big fatty steak like a ribeye. Another controversial food pairing for some may be dark chocolate. But I have it from Phil himself that he's done many dark chocolate tastings, especially if you get the dark chocolate with things like violets, dried fruits, nuts, rose petals, these kind of things. So that would be a perfect pairing there. So I asked you at the beginning of the episode, where did Malbec come from? It actually originated in the southwest of France and it came over to Argentina in the 1860s by an agronomist called Michel Pouget. You can actually drink Malbec still. It grows in France in under the guise Cotte. So they call it Cotte in France and you need to look on a wine label for the wine region Cajos. That is the main place where you'll find it, but it will be a very different flavour. The reason being, in the 1800s, phylloxera hit Europe. Phylloxera is this evil little bug, basically killed all the vines. And so now most vines are on different rootstocks. With the original Malbec coming over to Argentina, you have smaller berries, smaller leaves. It produces a red berry flavour, fruity style with softer tannins. But the Malbec that actually grows in France is actually rougher tannins, a little bit more rustic and darker fruit. So there you have it. Different clones, different versions, different styles. I just think Argentina is the perfect climate for Malbec. But go and try a Cajos for yourself to see what you think. So I'm going to leave you this week with a nice little quote from Paolo Coelho. So listen up. Accept what life offers you and try to drink from every cup. All wines should be tasted. Some should be sipped, but with others, drink the whole bottle. I think what we should take from that more importantly is never ignore wine. (laughs) On that note, don't forget to subscribe to the channel on whatever podcast app you're listening to. Leave me a comment. Ask me any questions. I want to know what you guys want to hear about. And I'll leave below on the show notes my contact details. See you again on another episode of Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat.